0: And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. When he told his father all as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, "'Go and see if all is is well with your brothers and with the flocks, "'and bring back word to me.' "'Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. "'When Joseph arrived at Shechem, "'a man had found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, "'What are you looking for?' "'He replied, "'I'm looking for my brothers. "'Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks?' "'They have moved on from here.' "'The man answered, "'I heard them say, "'Let's go to Dothan.' So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert and don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from G- Gila- Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, bam and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came, to, came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the, blood, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, In mourning, will I go down to the grave to my son? So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard.
1: Uh, We're loving being with you, and um, it's been great to be part of your sessions here. I'm particularly loving the singing. You guys sing really well, so um, keep that up. I'm really enjoying it, it's been very edifying. And you're pleased to know we're moving into the Joseph section of the Genesis narrative now, which means you won't have to listen to me say Isaac funny quite so, <laughs> quite so many more times. <clears throat> I believe I meant to say Isaac, so I'll work on that. And if there are other things, um, please let me know. I'm happy to accommodate. Um, we left off in chapter 27 earlier this morning with Jacob receiving Isaac's blessing. And then between that point... And chapter, 20, chapter 37, when we pick it up now, the author of Genesis tells us lots more about Isaac's sons and their families after them. And we're not skipping over those chapters because they're unimportant, but just because we're trying to get a feel for the whole sort of story arc of Genesis 25 to 50. And I've selected some chapters that I think help us to see most clearly the key characters in the story and how God's working in their lives. But I hope you might take the opportunity sometime to read the intervening chapters as well. They all contribute to the texture of the story in important ways. But now we're coming to chapter 37 and to the story of Joseph and his brothers, the sons of Jacob. And uh, I want to ask you to join me in praying again that the Lord would help us. So let's bow our heads. Our Father, we want to thank you again for the great privilege of opening the Scriptures and hearing your voice. And uh, we thank you that uh, as we've had it read to us just now, we've heard again the things you have spoken for our learning and instruction, for our encouragement. And we pray that as we reflect on these things, your spirit would bring your words to our hearts uh, with deep conviction, that you would be gracious enough to carry my words, that they might represent you well, and that all of us might listen to your voice and submit to you gladly. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story of Joseph is very famous, thanks in part to the popularity of the story in Sunday schools the world over, but also thanks to Android Lloyd Webber and Timothy Rice. They're the ones who wrote the hit uh, musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Some of you have perhaps seen it, some of you may be humming a tune from the musical in your head right now. Uh, the story of that coat that made it into the title of the musical and, and which has really made Joseph a household name is the story of Genesis 37. And even more than the coat, I reckon this is a technicolour story. What I mean is that in all its detail, this is not really a story for the faint-hearted. This is a colourful tale about a colourful family. Joseph, of course, is the son of Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Abraham is descended from Adam and Eve, who were expelled from the Garden of Eden after they disobeyed God. He's also descended from Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, who you might remember didn't get along very well. Cain, of course, killed Abel. Abraham, as we've reminded ourselves, himself had tried to pass off his wife as his sister on at least two occasions in order to protect himself. He'd also slept with his wife's servant girl because he didn't believe that God could fulfill his promises without taking matters into his own hands. Isaac, Abraham's son, had allowed himself to be deceived by Jacob into giving his inheritance to the wrong son. And this is the Jacob who is Joseph's father. In fact, Jacob had had 12 sons by four different mothers. That's just a quick summary. If ever there was a dysfunctional family, this is one. This story of this family is a technicolour story indeed. And we've just read the next chapter in this family's story. I'm not going to rehash the events of this chapter with you now, but I do want you to think with me for a little while about the human characters in this story and what where to make of them. I'm sure you're very familiar with the narrative, but let's think about each of the characters in turn. And I want us to then think about the divine story that sits over the top and lies underneath the story of this family. Because in the midst of all this dysfunction, in the midst of this very colorful story, God is fulfilling his purposes. And we need to notice that as well. But first, let's think about the key characters in this story and ask ourselves how the narrative of Genesis invites us to view them. Let's start with Jacob. You'll notice, of course, that we're not actually told here in verse, that we are actually told here in verse 2 that this, this narrative is the account of Jacob, not Joseph. That's because, as we've seen, the story of Genesis is really the story of Abraham and his family, of Isaac and his family, and Jacob and his family. And now we're up to the Jacob part. And each time we get to a new section in Genesis, this is how the author introduces it. The story of the father is told by recounting the way the children live. What do we see of Jacob here, though? Well, at the start of the chapter, we learn that Joseph was his favorite son. And the narrative uses his new name, Israel, interchangeably with his original name, Jacob. So verse 3, now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Not only did did he love Joseph more than his other sons, but he even gave him this symbol of his favouritism to wear around, the famous coat. You'll notice in the NIV that it's described as richly ornamented or other other translations call it a coat of many colours. The original uh, word is obviously hard to translate, so we're not entirely sure what it looked like, but it was definitely a schmick coat. And Joseph wearing it around had a predictable impact on his brothers. It led them to hate Joseph. So even from the beginning of the chapter, we're left wondering how bright Jacob is as a father. His preferential feeling for Joseph is questionable itself, but to show preferential treatment is decidedly foolish. And if he loves his son Joseph so much, why would he get him to wear a coat that was likely to make him an outcast amongst his brothers? Jacob just seems like a bit of a dope. And that's really confirmed for us by what happened at the end of the chapter. Because with very deliberate irony, we're told in verses 31 to 35 that Jacob was deceived by his sons into thinking that Joseph had actually died. And what makes this so ironic is that Jacob himself had famously deceived his own father, Isaac. On that occasion, which we read earlier back in chapter 27, Jacob had killed a couple of goats to prepare a meal for his dad and he'd gotten dressed up like his hairy brother Esau in order to trick his blind father into giving him the blessing. So I don't think it can possibly be an accident that Genesis tells us here that it was a goat which had been killed to put the blood on Joseph's coat and it's the clothing of Joseph that completes the deception. The parallels are not exact, but I think they're unmistakable. Jacob, the great deceiver, has been deceived. He who once famously tricked his old man has been famously tricked. His sons have now made a goat out of him. It seems Jacob has not learnt the lessons that his life so far ought to have taught him and we're meant to see, I think, that Jacob really is a bit of a dope. What about Joseph? Surely he's a more likeable and admirable character. After all, he's, he's the hero of this section of Genesis, right? Well, I want to suggest he doesn't come out of this chapter looking much smarter than his father. Obviously, uh, Jacob has to take some of the blame for the messed up relationship that Joseph has with his brothers, but Joseph is hardly innocent himself. We hear in verse 2 that Joseph brought a bad report to his father about some of his brothers. Now, he might have been following orders there, and it's possible his brothers were unaware of it, but nevertheless, it's interesting that the first thing we hear about him in the entire story is that he's squealing on his brothers. (coughs) Secondly, there's the matter of his dreams. Now, obviously, he can't help having the dreams. As we learn from later chapters, his dreams are very significant. Uh, We really ought to see them as a revelation from God of what he plans for Joseph's life. But you do have to ask yourself whether letting his brothers know about the dreams was really a very good idea, and he doesn't do it just once. He tells them about his first dream in verses 5 to 7, and we hear in verse 8 that they react angrily to it and, and hate him all the more. Not just, you notice, because of the dream, but the text says because of what he said. So you wouldn't think it was difficult to work out that it might have been wise to keep any further dreams he had to himself, but no. Verse 9 tells us the next dream he had, he also passed on. And in verse 10, even his dope of a father can see how idiotic this is. Jacob tells him off for talking about it, even though the text says he takes the content of the dream to heart. You know, if you happen to have a dream one day in which your siblings are all crowded around you in your home, massaging your neck and washing your feet and bringing you food and telling telling you how you're God's gift to the world, I reckon you'd be smart enough not to mention it at your next family function. Not so, Joseph. And then thirdly, there's the coat. Now again, we know it's Jacob's fault in part for giving it to him, but Joseph has to take some responsibility for wearing it. At the very least, you'd think he'd be self-aware enough to take it off when he went to visit his brothers while they were away tending the sheep. He could have removed it then without offending his father and it might have been just a little bit less in the face of his brothers. But that's not what Joseph does and it's hard to avoid the conclusion here, I think, that he's a bit of a poser, that he quite likes the attention from his father. He's quite fond of his schmick jacket and he gets a little bit of secret pleasure out of seeing the jealousy in his brother's eyes when he wears it. And if he's not a poser, then he's just incredibly, incredibly clueless. Joseph may end up being something of a hero in the chapters that follow, but there's, there's nothing heroic about him here. So what about the brothers? Is there anything to like about them? Well, we know they hate Joseph, although, as we've seen, that's not entirely without reason. Nevertheless, it doesn't really excuse the plot they hatch and the plan they then carry out. Joseph may be a poser but he's still their brother. Reuben looks like he may possibly be an exception to the rule though. In verses 21 and 22 he tries to protect Joseph from death. But then we discover in verse 29 that for some reason he'd left and come back and by the time he returns Joseph has already been sold to the Ishmaelites. He hasn't exactly followed through on his plan to protect Joseph. Look at verse 29. It says, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brother and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? I, I think it's a bit hard not to be cynical about Reuben's motives as well. He's already in his father's bad books after having sex with his father's concubine back in chapter 35. And as the eldest of Jacob's 12 sons, he probably would have been expected to look after his brother And he may have even been the one who would have been held to account if anything happened to Joseph. So it's hard not to wonder whether Reuben is simply trying to protect his own neck as much as Joseph's. What about Judah then? He's the one in verses 26 and 27 who persuades his brothers to sell Joseph rather than kill him. Is he perhaps a good guy here? Well, again, it's hard to avoid the sense that Judah's just a good little capitalist, really, and he can't see why they'd simply kill Joseph if instead they could get rid of him and make some money in the process, 20 silver coins. But even if he is genuinely thinking of Joseph's interests here, you still have to say, I think, that his effort to save Joseph ends up being pretty lame. If he really loved Joseph, then surely he would have stood up to his brothers and made a case for letting Joseph go. You know, whilst Reuben and Judah do seem to speak in Joseph's favour here, I'm not sure the text gives us much reason to respect their motives or their courage. And even if you take a very favourable view of them, they'd remain the exception that proves the rule, I think. Joseph's brothers act out of hatred and jealousy. The text uses both those words. And they dispose of him mercilessly. Verse 25 even tells us that as soon as they'd thrown him in the cistern, where I suppose they expected him to starve to death at that stage, they sat down to eat a meal. That's a callous and unfeeling moment, a a low point even for them. Back in Australia a few years ago, there were some horrific uh, bushfires in the state of Victoria that came to be known as the Black Saturday fires. Many homes and many lives were lost. And one of the things that emerged in the media in the aftermath of the fires was the the conduct of the then police chief in Victoria, a lady called Christine Nixon. And it emerged in a subsequent investigation that on the night of the fires, Christine Nixon left the disaster control room while these fires were blazing to go and have dinner with friends. And the public in Australia just couldn't stomach that revelation. I think it felt to people like sitting down to a meal with friends at the moment when fires were raging and you were in charge was inappropriate for someone in her position. And I think what we're reading in Genesis thirty-seven twenty-five is something similar. It's, it seems to say something that Joseph's brothers were happy enough to pull out the knives and forks and enjoy a meal together at the moment when their own flesh and blood was at the bottom of a cistern, suspecting he was never going to eat again. Their ears were deaf to Joseph's cries for help, the Bible says. And then, of course, there's the brothers' willingness to lie to their father at the end of the chapter, despite the very great grief it causes him. And they persist with their lie, including, you notice, Reuben and Judah, even as he persists in his heartbroken mourning. These brothers, like their father Jacob, are caught in the web of family dysfunction. Their actions in this chapter have the marks of Cain about them. Cain who killed Abel out of his jealous hatred. Notwithstanding any sympathy we might feel with Joseph's brothers because of the way they'd been treated by Jacob and Joseph, their malice and their deeds in this chapter are inexcusable. When it all boils down, they are ugly sinners. So that's the story at a human level. None of these characters emerge with much to commend them. This is a colourful family, to say the least. And this is just the next chapter in their dysfunctional and at times evil story. What's the bigger story? What's God doing in all of this? What's, What's the divine story that's written into this story about Jacob and his sons? Well, interestingly, throughout this chapter, God's name, I don't know if you noticed this, doesn't appear. He's nowhere referred to and he doesn't show up to say anything. At face value, he may seem absent. But invisible is not the same as absent. And in actual fact, God's hand is at work in this story. And when we look closely at the narrative, we can see God's purposes being worked out in Joseph's life and in Jacob's and ultimately even in the life of Jesus Christ. So I want us to turn our attention now to that, to the divine story in this this chapter. In the case of Joseph, of course, knowing how the story ends is a big help, as most of us, I presume, do. It enables us to see that God is always a step ahead of history. Knowing where all this is headed means we know that though Reuben intended to protect Joseph but failed, God intends much more through these events and ultimately succeeds. It also helps us to appreciate the significance of the man in verses 15 to 17 who just happens in the text to be standing around in Shechem when Joseph turned up and who knows exactly where the brothers have gone. This isn't just a coincidence. God placed him there so that Joseph would be able to find his brothers and so that the plan of God might be executed. And knowing how the story ends also enables us to see that Joseph's dreams weren't just wishful thinking but actually a glimpse into the purposes of God for this 17-year-old boy. And it helps us to see, therefore, the deep irony of verse 20, where the brothers say to themselves that if they put Joseph down in the cistern, his dreams will never be fulfilled, when in reality what they do in this chapter actually makes it possible for the dreams to be fulfilled. And, of course, the place where they will ultimately be fulfilled is in Egypt. And we mustn't miss the three references in this chapter to Egypt in verse 25, in verse 28 and in verse 36. Carefully placed by the author just so that we're given little nibbles of what's ahead. In Joseph's life, God is a step ahead of history. He's working out his purposes for Joseph and there are hints along the way that that's the case here. But so too with Jacob. The account of Jacob is not just an account of him being a dope as a father and of his sons deceiving him and leaving him in grief. We already know from earlier in Genesis that the account of Jacob must be the account of God fulfilling his promises because Jacob's no ordinary man. He's the grandson of Abraham. And Abraham's the one to whom God made those astounding promises that he would have many descendants, that they'd have a land to call their own and that they'd be staggeringly blessed, so much so that their blessing would overflow to bless all the nations of the world. They were God's astounding promises and God doesn't lie. Indeed, so committed is God to these promises that he becomes known as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Yes, this dope Jacob God identifies with him because he's made a promise to him and he will more surely keep that promise than the sun will rise tomorrow morning. This family may well be dysfunctional, stupid and sinful but they're a very special family to God. This Jacob, this Israel is the father of the nation that bears his name to this very day. What we are seeing here is the birth of that people who would be God's treasured possession and who did and who still do occupy a very special place in God's heart. At this point in history, Jacob's story is the divine story. And that divine story, of course, reaches its spectacular climax in the life and the death and the resurrection of a particular descendant of Jacob, a particular Israelite, born a long time later. And that moment in history is the narrative centre of the divine story. And there are hints of even that here in Genesis 37, I think. Let me mention a couple of things. It's hard to ignore the fact that in Luke's Gospel when the shepherd said some outlandish things about Mary's baby and when Jesus later explained his absence at the temple as him spending time in his father's house, that the text tells us Jesus' mother treasured these things in her heart not unlike Jacob's reaction to Joseph's dreams here in verse 11. It's also hard to ignore the fact that before lofty predictions about Jesus could be realised, like Joseph, he would arouse great jealousy, and he would be betrayed by his brothers into the hands of the Gentiles, and he would even be sold out for some silver coins. How Joseph's brothers treated Joseph is the beginning of a pattern. That runs right through Israel's history. Acts chapter 7, you might like to read, a pattern of God's people rejecting God's servants. See the seeds of that here. It's also hard to miss the fact that all those years after this story, Joseph's namesake, Jesus' own father, would go down to Egypt, incognito, to prepare the way for God's son to be called out of there in a triumphant act of rescue. This is the divine story. Through all the dysfunction and foolishness and evil and mess, and even though his name doesn't get a mention, God was working his purposes out. Even here in Genesis chapter 37, for the life of Joseph, for the life of Jacob and his family, and even in a way that points forward to the life of Jesus. This chapter doesn't just show us the brokenness of Jacob and his family. It also shows us the God who is at work to save and restore and use broken people as he keeps his promises and accomplishes his purposes. And that story continues to this day. It's a story of both ugliness and beauty, of both brokenness and restoration, of both sin and grace. And this chapter reminds us today that our story, like the story of this family, is both a colourful story and a beautiful one. Genesis 37 does tell a colourful story, does it not? And I'm convinced that that's precisely the reason Genesis 37 is in the Bible. Because the author of Genesis could have easily skipped some of this. He didn't have to show us quite so starkly what a dope Jacob was. He didn't really need to reveal what a poser Joseph seemed to be. He didn't have to share with us all the gory details of his brother's sins either. The story still would have made sense without most of those details. But the author of Genesis wants to include these details because they're actually critical to the point of his story. They're important details and ultimately important to us. And in fact, we see this time and time again through the Bible. The biblical writers just can't resist including chapters like this one Because they themselves found the Bible's story more real and more instructive and more compelling when they saw how seriously flawed their heroes were. And the biblical writers expect us to have the same experience. Genesis 37 is the story of Israel's ugly beginning. In his commentary on Genesis, John Calvin wrote, Seeing this family, one knows why God is graciously sending Joseph to Egypt. You know, This is the sort of family that wants you, you know, makes you want to be overseas for Christmas lunch so you don't have to turn up. This is real though, you see. This, this is what the great patriarchs of Israel were actually like. There's no airbrushing of the pictures here. There are no delicate omissions in the retelling to protect the reputations of the deceased. This is what they were like and we're told about it because this is what people are like. This is what people who read Genesis are like. This is what you and I are like. Perhaps not in exactly the same way, but we certainly share this utterly human DNA. We too are dopes and posers and ugly sinners. So when we airbrush ourselves or make the appropriate delicate emissions, we present better than that, I know. But we know full well that if someone were to tell the real story of our lives and our families and even our churches, there'd be similar dysfunction, similar foolishness, similar sin. Because we who read this colourful story are just as colourful in our own way as those we read about. And that's the point. I think, because when we see in Genesis chapter 37 that God works out his purposes in this dysfunctional family, our eyes are opened to the possibility that he might work out his purposes in our dysfunctional families. And when we see in Genesis 37 that God is at work to save and restore and use people in all their brokenness. Our eyes are open to the possibility that that same God might be at work to save and restore and even use broken people like us. And when we see in Genesis chapter 37 that even here God is beginning to transform all the ugliness into something beautiful Our eyes are open to the glorious hope that seeps from every page of the Bible in which every new generation needs to learn that God might just be at work in our lives and relationships and Christian communities to transform all that's ugly into something of great beauty. We might look at our lives at times and wonder where God is, but we must remember what Genesis 37 teaches us, invisible is not the same as absent. And the God who is far from absent in our lives is a step ahead of our history. And though we may never mention his name and though we may not hear him speak in any spectacular way and though we may be dopes and posers and ugly sinners, he is working out his purposes, whatever they may be. Perhaps a time of stern discipline. Perhaps a great blessing, who knows? But whatever else he may be doing invisibly and irresistibly, he is without a doubt working for transformation, for restoration of the broken. Grace for the foolish. Beautiful grace for colourful dopes, posers and ugly sinners, one and all. That's what Genesis 37 teaches us. Though I don't deserve it and though you don't either, God is at work in our lives, whether we can see it or not. He's using us. He's reshaping us. He's blessing us and others through us. It doesn't always feel that way. It doesn't always feel like he's working in us or using us, especially when we sense most acutely how, how little we deserve him to. But it's true, God promises and God always keeps his promises. The Apostle Paul writes, We know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, To be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you catch that last phrase? It ought to arrest our attention freshly this morning and lead us to proper worship. God's ultimate purpose is that we would be made like Jesus, and that Jesus would be, in a way Joseph never was, preeminent the firstborn among many brothers. Why don't you take a moment to reflect and pray and then I'll pray for us.